Well, we're really going to introduce the subject today in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, that's probably no shock to you that we won't get too far into these verses as far as I thought we would. But when we speak of prayer and how you pray for others, it, it, it arrested me. It stopped me in my tracks. This happens a lot. As I read the Bible, you might be uh, surprised to, to know that, that when pastors, hopefully when your pastors read the Bible, um, sometimes we have moments where we say, hold on, I didn't know that, or wait, I, I think this is compelling me to change how I think or, or act. Um, there's a part of me almost every Sunday that is worried that if I speak of of theology or doctrine or, or God, that it will bore some of you. That there's a sense in me sometimes that if I don't kind of pin these very deep and heady thoughts about who God is with some immediate relevant application in your life, that uh, you're not going to stay awake. And it is tempting then as a pastor to either want to gloss over theology or brush um, lightly on subjects such as predestination and try to get to the stuff about how to have a better marriage or what to do with the, you know, uh, an angry boss or how to raise your kids. And, and those are very, very important subjects. Um, but I, I, I think in my heart, I know there's sometimes a, a fear that if I dwell too long on, um, on the things of God and and the knowledge of God that it might not capture your attention. I was challenged then in this prayer, looking at Paul's priorities, that I, I don't think he ever had such concerns. After all, he started this letter to them in talking about some of the most deep and profound theology in the Bible. And we've spent many, many hours at this time talking about predestination and, and talking about how he works the purpose of will, talking about adoption, talking about the Holy Spirit. And I, I hope that it has been worthwhile, but, you know, Paul certainly thought they could handle this. They need this. And I think one of the, the beauties of coming to this passage, which I have read so many times before, uh, sort of a phrase came to my mind of Paul thinks of prayer as a means of discipleship. I'm going to talk a little bit about prayer in a second, but that's sort of the theme is when you pray for others, and I hope you do, and I'm sure you have done that many times, people give their prayer requests, but have you ever thought of prayer as a way that you disciple other people or encourage their discipleship? And frankly, I don't know that I ever thought of it that way. I mean, I pray in such a way that hopefully... Um, people are blessed by it and things like that. But you get the, the sense that when Paul prays, he's teaching them something about God. He's using even the power of prayer to disciple these believers who are so far away. And I think that that is a paradigm shifter for me. So that's why I think we're probably going to spend at least you know a couple sermons on this. Um, and I hope I can communicate this to you in some way, just how profound I think it is that Paul would see prayer as a way to disciple other people and to challenge us to think of prayer as a way to encourage, motivate, empower discipleship. Because that's an, I, I want to know that. 
There's going to be a time when my kids are not going to be in my home, and I want to know how I can still disciple them. And I think Paul models here exactly the kind of attitude and, and priority and power of prayer in discipling. Now, just for background, Paul spent about three years in Ephesus, but by the time he wrote this letter, about five or six years had passed, and we sort of take it for granted that we can literally video call someone on the other side of the planet right now, that, that time and, and distance hardly uh, affect our ability to communicate with folks. So we have to understand that when Paul was writing this letter, um, he didn't know anything about the Ephesians except that which was communicated through hearing news here and there, or maybe a messenger was sent. It could take weeks or months, maybe even years, to get a report about how things are going. And Paul's special affection for the church in Ephesus is uh, such that his response to hearing how they're doing, it elicits uh, this prayer, which arguably begins in verse 15, uh, 15 here and goes all the way to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, where you finally have the amen. So it's not quite that the whole thing is a prayer, but this is what I mean by discipleship prayer. He's literally saying, here's the things I'm praying for you. And then in the middle of his prayer, he starts to get into theology and doctrine and all of these subjects before kind of returning in chapter 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, and concluding sort of the, the prayer all the way at the end of chapter 3. Prayer was discipleship. Prayer was something he felt was important to discipling others. So, um, already mentioned that the first 14 verses here of Ephesians is, a, is really just blessings and, and how glorious and good and great God is that he has chosen to bless believers. And he knows that the believers in Ephesus really do have the kind of faith that would appreciate everything he just said. In other words, um, if I started a letter to you and I just started going into, you know, predestination, the redemption, all these things, um, that might seem awkward um, in, in just like a simple correspondence. But knowing you, if I were to write a letter to you and, and I filled the first part with theology, you, you would understand why I was doing that. You, you would, I know you would have the kind of faith that would appreciate and understand um, I say that because Paul's response of prayer is because he has an intimate relationship with the Ephesians. Um, he cares about them. He loves them. In his heart, he knows that they love the Lord. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you Remembering you in my prayers, Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Another way to say this is he knows that theology and doctrine stirs the heart of these people. There's, there's, it's not, um, here's what I would do in my classes. <laughs> when I was at UCI, I was, started as a computer engineer major, um, I remember almost everything just going right over my head. And uh, I would spend most of the time doodling. 
So, I mean, it, it really was, and I could have tried harder in that class, don't get me wrong. I could have tried harder in that class, but I knew as I sat in there, I am not a computer engineer at heart. It, it, it's not, A, really clicking or making sense, and B, I just don't have any, like, real interest in this. I, I, I did not. And in a way, if you read Ephesians 1 through 14 and none of that clicks with you, um, your note sheet is mainly now comic strips um, unrelated to the message. You know, if your comic strip is related to the message, I'd love to see it. But, you know, if your note sheet is really just a doodles and a, a grocery list, this, in a way, is not for you. You know, Paul is not saying that this... Uh, you, you are the one that has this kind of faith in the Lord Jesus. And of course, as we said before, you can be. You can cry out to the Lord in salvation, um, but it's, it's not what would cause, you don't have the kind of faith, let's say, that causes Paul's heart to glow in this prayer he's about to give. And Paul says he knows, he has heard that the Ephesians are those who have put their faith in Jesus. And this is clear. It's not just as a one time I raised my hand, um, you know, at a, at a prayer meeting, I signed a card, I was baptized. He means when he says that they believe in Jesus, that they continually put their faith in Jesus and they demonstrate it by loving each other that they show they're invested and they care. They read verses 1 through 14. It fills their heart with faith in the Lord, and they cannot help but do the next logical thing when they hear glorious truth about God, which is to see their neighbor and want to love them. Love for others is one of the greatest demonstrations of faith in Christ. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another, John 13, 35. And yes, Christians are to love everyone, including their enemies. But all over the New Testament, you have verses like John 13 and Ephesians 1 here that points out that we do have a unique love for each other, for the saints, for other believers. It's not the focus of Ephesians 1, um, but I, I just want to point out that when we say here love towards all the saints, that love is not just um, an emotional fondness or affection. We oftentimes describe or think of love in, in those terms of, of simply the feeling that you get um, towards someone that you like and maybe even a desire to be with them or something like that. But in the Bible, love just looks and sounds like many, many, many different kinds of things. And this is real short and real fast, but the Bible describes love in so many different forms, from sacrificial giving to sharing burdens to rebuking and calling out sin to forgiving to counseling to mourning together. Love amongst us is very multifaceted and as diverse as God's love for us. How many ways does God love us? Does he just feel good about us? Does he just kind of like us and, and shower us with affection? Well, Yes, he does, but he shows it in so many ways. Even discipline is love. Even having us face the consequences of our sin is love. Showing us grace is love. There are many ways that we show our love. Even we were talking about yesterday in, in our men's breakfast, the church discipline 
the process of, of calling out a brother who's in sin, we do that because we love them, not because we, we hate them. So when it says, I've heard of your love toward all the saints, understand that is such a, a multifaceted, it looks like so many wonderful, beautiful things uh, converging and coming together. He's heard about this and his response, his priority is to pray. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, I can only imagine Paul's relief when he hears that things are going well with the Ephesians. I mean, the elders we meet once a week, and you don't know how relieved are we are to hear when you guys stay out of trouble for a week. So I can only imagine, you know, Paul, five or six years, oh, I hope they're doing okay. I mean, like, that, that's a long time to kind of be, you know, wondering. And I'm sure he's heard different reports and, and so on and um, things here and there. But this is his definitive statement about it. Um, he is relieved. And what does relief, you know, precipitate? Gratefulness. Paul is grateful. And it demonstrates that he is fully aware he can't be everywhere at once. He can't live someone else's Christian life for them. I would love to, you know, deal with all your problems for you in a godly, biblical way, but I cannot, and I do not want to. Um, I do, but I don't. <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, because I, I, of course I could sit here and say, you know, this is how you should deal with your kid and how you should deal with your boss and how you should deal with your wife, but I don't want to be in it, okay? Because it, it's tough. I understand when you're actually in the moment having to do the right thing, that is hard. And as much as um, I, 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 I would do anything for you, even if I had to step in um, in those situations, and yet we cannot be everywhere at once. And Paul, the super apostle Paul, he's also admitting here, he can't live the, the, the Christian life for all these Ephesian believers. So when he hears, hears that they're doing okay, I'm so thankful because he knows all he could do was what he could do. As a pastor, as a church planter, by faith, he could only do what he could do, and then he has to trust the Lord for everything else. He's to trust the Lord for the results of it. So, of course, when he hears that God has been working, continuing to work, he is thankful not to the Ephesians, but he's thankful to the Lord because God has done it. And it's not Paul even that is has done. He's done what he can, but he couldn't be there. He couldn't live their life for them, so he's thankful. His gratitude is to God that the Ephesians are doing well. Now, when we come to the subject of prayer, I know sometimes we think that prayer is what we do when we've tried everything else. We've tried obedience, and things didn't work out. We tried disobedience, and things didn't work out. That definitely didn't work out. Now you're desperate. And what says desperation more than prayer, right? For others of us, prayer is like an accessory to the Christian life. It's a good thing. You tack it on when you can, but it's almost like a suggestion, like getting a salad at a steakhouse. Well, if it comes with a meal, I guess I'll get it, but I'm not at that steakhouse for a salad. And so I think we sometimes think of, of prayer as like a, a nice thing to add on to the Christian life, when I have time, when I have inclination, when I'm feeling extra Christian-y. Well, 
to be honest, prayer is, is all of those things, but it's also more. Of course, it's prayers for the desperate moments. Even Jesus prayed very desperately in the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, you can pray at any time when you have a spare moment. Any moment is a good time for prayer. It's definitely an extra thing you could be doing when you're, when you're sitting around. It's totally fine to tack prayer onto that, of course. Prayer is more than, more than all of those things. It is those things and it is more. It is more even than just talking to God because sometimes the Spirit has to intercede with us with groanings that are too deep even for words. Prayer is something that can be formal and informal. You have Abba, Father, which is like crying out, Daddy, and you also have our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Prayer is so very versatile. There's many ways that it sounds and even many ways that it looks from standing to kneeling to laying on the floor, in the dirt, on a boat. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul views prayer not, I would say, as a, not only as a priority, which it is, not only as a basic of Christian living, which it is, but here again, I was shocked that he uses it as a way to continue to have a discipleship relationship with the Ephesians. And all that to say that prayer is... Um, I think sometimes it gets a bad rap when you say that prayer is a, is a discipline. It is, but I think it kind of makes it sound too um, formulaic or rigid, which is just about the last thing that the Bible would encourage you to think of prayer as being, is like a formula or as something you just do because you have to do it. Prayer is really just being in a constant you know, relationship to God, being aware that he knows what you're doing, being aware that you can talk to him, that he knows what you're thinking uh, all the time anyway. It's living in the presence of God. It's prayer is just, in reality, um, living that out in our thought life. Um, and yes, there are special times of prayer and different kinds of prayer, but I really would encourage us to think differently because it's, it's hard to understand how Paul could think of prayer in this formulaic, rigid way if really, indeed, this whole first half of this book of Ephesians is, is sort of a prayer. It's like a sermon, it's a prayer, it's a theology lesson, it's a praise. It's all meshed together. It's because it's not like there's some just simple formula for prayer. So here, again, I would uh, uh, consider how Paul used prayer even to make disciples. And I think this is a challenge to each one of us to think of how we pray for each other and even how we pray for ourselves. Um, it's significant because uh, I think it, it should change. These words here should change a little bit of how we pray for others. Um, we'll get to that at the end. Let's, let's start here uh, in verse 17. What does he pray? He remembers in him in prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having your, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's all sort of one big uh, conditional phrase or 
Um, it, it's all one thought there. And of course, when you begin prayer, you must think of who you are praying to or, or what basis does your prayer <coughs> have? What is the meaning of prayer? And all prayers must be God-centered. All prayers must be framed by who God is. And this happens to be a very Trinitarian beginning to Paul's prayer life. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He, God, he calls God <clears throat> the Father of glory. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. First person of the Trinity. Again, it's sort of interesting in that the phrasing is that God the Father is also Jesus Christ God. Do you catch that? I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So he's calling God the Father, first person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ God as well. That's what we see in the Gospels, that he believed that the Father was his God and also his Father. There's a profound relationship between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. And as we've already said, when it comes to an inheritance, the only way that we can be inheritors of God, the Father's blessings, is if we are children of God. And the only way we can become children of God is if the Son of God, by his own substitution and sacrifice, can make us co-heirs, equal with him, bring us into the family by his blood. Only Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, can make us inheritors with him to be as equal with him as children of God. So that's what we mean by God the Father. He's, the, he's, he's in a unique relationship with the Son, also in unique relationship to us. He is our Father. Well, we can only call him Father because of what Jesus Christ has done. We've talked about that already, uh, I know, but just to remind you. Um, Paul goes on to speak of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an amazing title, each word of it. Ours, as in he is ours. <laughs> All of us. It's, it's a corporate idea. It's, it's that Jesus Christ has done something for all of us such that we can call him ours and, and he can call us his. We share this common faith and hope. The title Lord emphasizes his command over our life. Jesus can't be your savior if you don't also acknowledge him as the king of the universe. And if the king of the universe certainly the king of your life. Jesus, the, the, the name Jesus in Hebrew means God saves or Yahweh saves. And, and while Jesus is Lord, king of the universe, total ownership of everything in the universe and every soul, he's also the one who brought us salvation. How did he bring us salvation? Well, this king, this Lord, this sovereign, he died. He sacrificed his own life in order to bring us to God. Jesus means that he is the humble Lord who willingly laid down his life for his people. The term Christ isn't a last name. 
it's a special description, meaning anointed one, or maybe for us it might make more sense to say it means chosen one. He is the one and only son of God and alone has accomplished God's plan to redeem us. He is singular and unique. Christ means he is a unique individual standing outside of all time because he is the only second person of the Trinity who came and took on flesh, became our sin sacrifice. That uniqueness, we've already spoken of that too, I know, but that uniqueness means, um, or that title, Christ, speaks of that uniqueness of him being divinely appointed by the Father to be the means of our salvation. Lastly, we have here the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We did talk about this last time as well. Uh, but the Father gives the spirit to us. And we, we said already that um, this is not speaking of, um, or this isn't trying to say that there are some Christians who have the spirit and some Christians who don't have the spirit. Uh, we're, we're very clear in other passages that the spirit goes to every believer, the giving here is something a little bit uh, unique. Um, in a way, it's Paul praying that the Holy Spirit would do his work specifically in the lives of, of the Ephesians. He's calling upon God um, for the Spirit to, to do what he does. In a way, um, just like being filled by the Holy Spirit, he said last time, is a command but it doesn't mean that we don't have the Spirit at all in our lives if we're being commanded to be filled by the Holy Spirit, but to do what we can to give an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to desire, want to be uh, compelled, controlled by the Spirit. And so here the flip side sort of is for Paul to pray that the Spirit would work in our lives. God is asking the Father to, have, to, to give the Spirit so the Spirit will do something in our hearts. Now you might ask, why pray for something only God can do? And that he will only, by his own prerogative, I mean, are we to boss God around? Is, is Paul bossing God around? I'm praying that the Father might give the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him to us. Well, frankly, God wants us to pray. I mean, God wants us to participate in what he is doing. That is God's prerogative. So God's divine prerogative is not, don't tell me what to do. Do you know who you are? Do you know who I am? I'm God. I'm all powerful. I'm all wise. You think in your very limited, you know, understanding of how the world works, in your limited uh, power and, and love for others that you can tell me what to do? No, no, no. That's not what God says. He could, but God's divine prerogative is not to do that. God's divine prerogative is instead, in some way, somehow, I, I can't exactly explain, but he wants us to participate by prayer in what he is doing. Um, yes, he can do just whatever he wants. In a sense, he does, but somehow, and it's kind of like predestination, it just kind of stretches our brain as to how God chooses, right? Um, but we're responsible for our actions. In the same way or similar way, when we pray, God does use our prayers to accomplish his 
purposes. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. James 5.16. Prayer works. God wants to hear our prayers. It matters to him. And he actually does things, gets things done on earth as, as it is in heaven by our prayers. Does he need to? No. Does it mean that we get to boss God around? No. Is God still going to do what he's going to do, even if you utter like a, like a not a very good prayer? Yes, he's still going to do what he does, but somehow, some way, he wants to, all throughout the Bible, reiterate, there's a very real relationship that you have to God, wherein your prayers matter, wherein what you say matters, wherein uh, what you take the time to, um, to communicate to God in, in the depths of your heart, it matters. It matters to him. You know, I can't always explain how if he's already got everything sorted out from beginning to end and why any of that would matter. But it matters. God says it matters. What is the focus now of Paul's prayer, and really everything flows from this, is that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened will reveal to us things that we are to know. And you're going to see that um, we're not going to actually get into verse, uh, the rest of verse 18 through 23 today, but the focus is knowing. The focus of Paul's prayer is that the Ephesians would know something. It's always invoking the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one, uh, is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He is the one that takes the thoughts of God and brings them to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, makes this very clear i'm gonna skip down but I, you in your own time you know second corinthians 2 6 through 12 i will just start in verse uh, 10 these things the things of god god has revealed to us through the spirit for the spirit searches everything even the depths of god for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him so also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What does the Spirit know very intimately and well? The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit knows God intimately and well. If he's going to tell us anything, impart anything to us, it's going to be the knowledge of who God is. This is the most important thing to know. It's the answer to the question, what is this all about? Why are we here? Who made this? What's the point? Why am I here? The answer to any question ever uttered on the face of the planet from the most mundane question that a child might offer and then say, why, 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 to the deepest philosophical musings of the most honored and intelligent, revered scholar, 
it all ultimately goes back to God. Everything. So what could we want more than the Spirit of God revealing to us the things of God? This is, this is better than having you know, a subject matter expert. This is God himself revealing God to us. He says actually that the Father, you know, again, has already given us his Spirit. It's an assumption that we have the Spirit if you're a Christian. You have the ability to know God in a glorious way. Back in Ephesians, Paul says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. In other words, this has already happened. You've already had the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's why the Spirit can now reveal more and more truth to you about God. What does that phrase mean, the eyes of the heart? Well, uh, for anyone new or, or maybe you forgot, this book, uh, well, this letter was written 2,000 years ago. Large portions of this book were written much, you know, much more before that, uh, even up to 1,000 years, 1,500 years before that. But if you're reading something from 2,000 years ago, you have to understand there's probably going to be some differences of culture and background and, and language than us. So the idea of the heart for us, typically, is that's where your emotions are. You know, Valentine's Day, you celebrate love, it's hearts and, and feelings and all those things. So we typically associate the heart as, you might say, the seat of emotion. But to the Hebrews, and even to the Greeks, the heart wasn't related to the emotions or feelings. Actually, when they wanted to talk about like deep emotions and feelings, they talked about your bowels because that's where you get butterflies in your stomach. That's where you feel anxiety and worry. It's, it's more in your stomach than your heart per se. Um, and so they, they thought of your guts when they thought of your feelings. Your heart was actually the place where your most deep convictions uh, are held. It's the place where you, where you make moral decisions. Uh, the heart is where your character is. So... This explains why Jesus said uh, in Matthew 5, uh, or 15, 18 and 19, for what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, talking about their speech. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So do you say out of the heart comes, you know, emotions and feelings and mushy-gushies? No, he says out of the heart comes these uh, uh, evil and wicked, sinful things, your, things of character, things of moral nature. That's what the heart is. So when Paul says that we've had the eyes of our heart enlightened, and that's something that happened when we became a Christian, he's saying, first of all, that our hearts were dark. Um, if you want to, you can turn just a page over or a couple pages over, Ephesians 4.18. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul says that the Gentiles... Those are the, the non-Jewish non people, like me. <laughs> he says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. The heart is hard. It's resistant to God's moral character and nature. It's resistant to God's care and love. And it then produces this darkness, this veil of, of being unable to understand, unable to discern, unable to um, make 
uh, choices that reflect a godly priority. It's like trying to read in the dark or like trying to learn woodworking in a garage with no lights. It's, it's dangerous. Um, it, it is something that, um, that only the most stubborn would do <laughs> is try to you know, work on a car you know, at midnight with no lights. Only if you're very stubborn would you do that. But that's what we are before we become Christians, is we're stubborn and we don't want to do things God's way, and it darkens our understanding. It, it, it keeps us from seeing things as they are. But when the light of the gospel was shown on our lives and Jesus transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of light, our hearts were softened. We started to see and understand the things of God. And as the Spirit took the words of Scripture, made them alive to us, we began to grow in our understanding of who God is, which among, among other things is a revelation, a, a growing revelation and appreciation for how God made the world and cares for it, a, a growing awareness of our sin and, and how disgusting it really is and how it hurts me and hurts others, a rising sense of compassion for those who are lost and broken and hurting and just as much in the dark as we once were. When the eyes of our heart become enlightened, we see things the way God sees them. And, and truly part of this knowledge of God that we can make because our hearts have been enlightened, the Spirit is in us. This is all kind of like saying the same thing in different ways. This knowledge of God is personal. Paul is praying this not because they need more of, let's say, like a seminary education. Even though, again, in the midst of this prayer, he's going to give them some, just hit them hard with some theology. But this really... This knowledge needs to be real and personal. You can know things about God. You can be a theist. You can believe Jesus was a good teacher. You can have a general sense of morality and uh, vaguely acknowledge that there is a creator out there somewhere, but not know God. The word knowledge and knowledge of him is a word that goes beyond just the facts about who God is. It means really, truly knowing God. I, I can't tell you how many times I, I've watched YouTube videos on how to, how to do something, how to fix something, and I know a lot of stuff. And I know, um, <laughs> I'll know how to fix something. Um, you know, on a, on a, we got an RV a few years ago, a little bit of fixer-upper. Watch a bunch of YouTube videos. Oh, I know now how to do this. But <laughs> until I'm actually under the car, I don't know diddly squat. And, and what I discover is, as much as I know something, when I'm actually you know, under the RV, I'm lost. I, what am I looking at? This doesn't look like the video. You know, what happened here? Uh, you, know, where, you just get lost you know, sometimes. And that's true even about theology. I mean, there's so many times, there's, there's so much theology that I learn, but... It, in seminary, but in a way, I don't really know it until that doctrine has changed me somehow. I've actually had to depend upon it and lean on it or exercise that knowledge. When Paul speaks then about knowing God, about wanting the Ephesians to know 
God more and grow in that knowledge. Paul isn't necessarily saying that they need to listen to more sermons or read the Bible more. Not necessarily. He intends, he means that the Spirit would genuinely work in their life to connect knowing God with how they think, how they act, their attitudes, how they make decisions and choices, what they consider right and wrong. And yes, of course, you do need to listen to good preaching and you need to read the Bible and you need to talk about biblical truths with others. You need to do all of that. But it is the Spirit's work that must connect that knowledge to conviction and to belief. That is what Paul is praying. It's a discipleship prayer. That's what I want most is for them to not just show up at church, not just to hear someone talk about the Bible or listen to a bunch of sermons or read the Bible for five hours a day, but for them to actually know God, to apply it. And I know we won't get into the exact content of what Paul prays today, but I think it's worth thinking about right now what kind of priorities we have in prayer and why we pray for what we pray when it comes to our prayers for others. Paul prays discipleship-focused prayers, prayers that people would grow in their walk, in their faith with the Lord. I think subtly, sometimes. Sometimes we pray almost the opposite. And this is not to call out any single person's prayer. I've done this a thousand times, if not more. But we almost pray that others would never have opportunities to grow in knowing God because we're praying that everything goes the way we would like. As if God's priorities are that we would be comfortable and healthy and free from trouble. And so we're praying that, you know, everything would go well, that we'd be healthy, everything goes our way, that people do what we want. Now, if it was true that we grew the most when we were comfortable, healthy, and free from any trials, then yes, that is a great prayer. But is that true? We already know the answer. Do we learn the most about God when everything is going our way? Or when we actually have to believe and trust him at his word because things are not going how I thought they would. Now, the flip side is not praying calamity for people. (laughs) I pray you would just have the worst week this week. Nothing would go your way. It's not that. It's not as if in the Bible there's not prayers that things would turn out, let's say, a certain way. Um, But I'll go so far even to say this, every prayer we utter should have as its heartbeat this basic kind of tenet that it should be for the sake of our growth as disciples. That should be behind it. Whatever it is, even if it's for, you know, for the, the cancer to be beaten, even it's for, the, you know, for you to get the job, Yes, we can pray for those things, but we can pray for those things still in such a way that we are saying the most important thing that about that situation is that you would know God better and more. That you would 
grow in personally, intimately, believingly, savingly, trustingly, wholly, totally, completely believing in, in God and growing in the knowledge of him. And just, just one almost silly example I was thinking of. We, we pray for travel mercies a lot. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I don't want uh, something to happen to you as you're traveling on the road and going on your road trips and everything. But, you know, sometimes God does want to teach us while we're on a road trip or teach us while we have a delayed flight. I mean, I know folks who have uh, broken down on the side of the road and then the, the tow truck came and they had an opportunity to witness to the tow truck driver. And that person came to the Lord. Well, not that I want your tire to, you know, blow up on the freeway, but I don't know if the best prayer is solely that you are never inconvenienced. Um, I remember being on a, on a road trip in a, it's a little bit after college, I think, and the car that we were in completely broke down. Like, we were very, very far away from, from here, and the car was so broken down, like, it was like, we have to leave it here. It doesn't make sense to tow it back. You know, you're going to sell it to the mechanic for like a few hundred bucks. Like, that was the level of this, of this uh, tow truck being, uh, or the, of this car being broken down. Now, the brother that it belonged to, he didn't get angry or upset. He, he handled it so, so well. I was so impressed. He didn't let it frustrate him, and therefore it didn't frustrate us or me and, and another brother. And we had a great rest of the trip. The, the trip was wonderful. Even that part of it was part of kind of the adventure uh, of it. <laughs> when we got back, we had a celebration of life service for the car because it, we have been on so many adventures with it. So it was like a heartbreak because, you know, like we'd been on so many like camping trips and hiking trips and it died on the way. And that sounds like, like silly, I know. But, you know, it gave us an opportunity to not need everything to go our way and to just trust God and know that he would take care of us. And he, and he did. So I, I hesitate to say, don't ever pray, pray something nice for someone. Don't ever pray, you know, for travel mercy. No, it, it, that's not the point. It's just um, to be thoughtful that, that we remind people, even our prayer, if our prayers are discipleship, if you are going to hear my prayers and I'm going to pray for people as they're traveling, maybe it would be good to say, you know, we pray, of course, that there, there'd be no hiccups. You know, Pastor Chris actually leaving on vacation, I think, uh, on, on Friday or so. Well, of course, we're going to pray for safe travels. But we're also going to pray, Lord, that, that all the things that happen on the trip might lead them to glorifying and worship God. I don't want them, I don't want anything to happen. I don't want any of you guys to get hurt. I don't want anyone to get into a car accident. I don't want anyone to end up in the hospital. I don't want anyone have to visit anyone that has some tragic, you know, accident happen. So I will keep praying that you are safe and, and, and that your kids are fine and all those things. I do pray that. But I, I, if I only pray that, what am I going to think when something bad does happen? If I'm only praying that, what am I going to think if something does happen to your kid, if something does happen on your vacation, if I've only prayed, God, your will is, is just that we'd be comfortable. It, it, it's a little bit dangerous. I think Again, if I'm thinking of discipling through prayer, 
I must also pray. But Lord, sometimes there's divine appointments. Sometimes there's gas station trips that you, gas stations you want us to stop at. Sometimes there are places you would have us go and be that we would not, but there's a divine appointment to be made. Discipleship and prayer means that God is the focus and growing in our knowledge of him and to even pray that for other people and let people know you're praying that for them. And maybe you can, you don't have to be as uh, obvious as praying and saying, but God, you know, if you want to give them a flat tire, that's okay, whatever you want to do. And, you know, you know I guess I, I, I don't want to boss you around God either. But, so, you know, you don't need to get complicated. I get it. You pray, keep them safe, help them to draw close to you and know you and love you, no matter what happens, because uh, God, you're, you're in control. Uh, it doesn't, you don't have to overthink it. I'm obviously overthinking it, but you don't have to over, overthink it. As long as a priority in your heart is that those you love know God, I think it'll be okay. Does that, that make sense? I hope it makes sense. We will get into the details of the kinds of things that uh, he prays next time we're together, but let me take the time right now to pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your spirit. What a glorious joy and a tremendous relief for me as a pastor uh, to, to hope and believe uh, and be grateful for when you work in our lives and when you reveal Jesus Christ to these precious people in the midst of life's hardships and trials and even blessings and joys. Of course, we can know you when things are good as well. So we pray uh, in all things, all circumstances, trials, tribulations, joys and blessings that you would be the one that we are wanting to know. How does this reflect your glory? How does this make me trust you? How does this make me believe in you? I pray that we would want that for each other, not just to, to have um, comfortable, easy lives, um, but lives of discipleship. Lord, we know that being a disciple means to deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily and follow you. It's not always easy. So, Lord, as much as I don't want to pray trials for anyone or any disaster to befall anyone here, what I do want most of all is for them to know you and to love you. And whatever it takes for that, Lord, I suppose I do want, um, Lord, as long as I, I can be there also to share that, whether burden or happiness. So, Lord, I pray that you would increase us in the knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.